Hey, Brando, let me ask you a question. Ask away. What do these people have in common? Uh, Sheck Exley. Larry Green. They're cave divers. The, uh, well, you, you might... They're, well, they're very famous. Brandon Schwartz. Okay, well... They all have facial hair. They also have two legs, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're all men. And guess what? Our friends over at Manscaped, this is breaking news. <laughs> now sells... Beard products. That's right, Brando. They are once again revolutionizing men's grooming with the brand new Beard Hedger Pro Kit. From a beard trim to a fresh shave, the technology behind the Beard Hedger Pro Kit allows you to shape your signature beard look. I know you like to kind of change it around a little bit, you know, going occasionally, from a, yeah, a full beard to the goatee to a little bushier down to the little, little smoother yeah. little. You know, you know. I don't like to look at the same guy in the mirror. You, you know, go down from the <laughs> you go from the full Larry Green to the George Clooney, <laughs> you know, from time to time. Yeah. Uh, you're comparing me to these guys, and they don't deserve that that hit, man. That's uh... well. Now you can finally use Manscaped products, Brando, to make your drapes match your carpet by going to Manscaped.com and using the code TGDP for twenty percent off and free shipping. Nice. Well, that's good. I mean, uh, that's something all us uh, beardly men can use. That's right. And you know, you don't. You know, it, it's the those new recreational divers always want to be clean shaven so that they don't get a little water trickling into their scuba mask you know they need to stop grease up <laughs> grease up their nose and and facial hair so they get a better seal but when you see a cave diver you see old larry green getting the water and a two foot long beard flailing around <laughs> he just stuffs it down and he doesn't give a goddamn about any water getting in. you think Shaq actually either. gave yeah. a damn about water getting in his mask nah he just dealt with it like a manly scuba cave dive man but if he had the brand new beard hedger he could uh, alter the, the settings this thing's a juggernaut for fixing faces juggernaut Cor- cordless trimmer with the rotary wheels gives you 20 hair cutting links all with just one guard so no messy drawers full of add-ons whoa yeah face grooming doesn't need to be hard anymore get 20 different beard links do you need a license and training to operate this thing there's an advanced (laughs) beard trimming uh open water course coming out (laughs) Fresh from the guys at Manscaped, the Great Dive Podcast, and you can you can earn your C card that goes towards your master scuba diver trainer or master scuba diver not trainer. It goes towards your master scuba diver. I am a I have the beard trimming specialty. There's a new bearded specialty, facial hair trimming. I think it should just and and ladies, don't be afraid to get in this class. That's right. This new product for Manscaped is good for beards as well as bearded clams. Wait a minute. <laughs> Wow. The new kit, Brando's got uh, beard shampoo and conditioner. There's a new beard oil and a beard balm. The Pro Beard Kit also comes with three free gifts, a beard brush, comb, and scissors to ensure your beard is ready to impress. Is that uh, beard oil like a 5W30? What is it? It's an essential piece of your main facial accessory. 
No one wants a guy whose beard is brittle and dry. Just ask my wife. The oil <laughs> relieves dryness both on the beard and the skin beneath while adding a little, you know, shimmer and shine, making you look extra fine. And your coat will shine like nobody's business. I mean, the way you describe this trimmer, it's pretty powerful. Is it going to take some training? Is it going to take a license? Do you need to, am I going to have to do some work to learn how to operate this thing? Question. It's a very simple three-day class. There's a group on available for $99.99. Oh. <laughs> and don't forget. Get 20% off of free shipping with the code TGDP at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com. Use the code TGDP. Manscaped Beard Hedger, one stroke, one guard, 20 lengths. Same code works for your specialty course, too. There you go. Brando, it's here. Cave Diving Month. Months. Great Month-ish. dive podcast, world-renowned. International Cave Diving Month. I know it's your favorite time of year. It is. It is, and it's. And I like that it's more than a month, and I like that it's... Um, the most wonderful time of the year? It is the most wonderful time of the year. We'll have to make a couple of cave diving carols, if you will, to go on our cave diving Christmas album that we've been promising to put out for years now. When it finally does get put out, it's going to be a blockbuster. Oh, the cavern zone is mighty <laughs> frightful. <laughs> and I tied this line so tightful. And we've only got one way to go. Into the cave we go, we go, we go. Beautiful, James. I don't know. We'll we'll polish them up, but not a bad start. For nineteen ninety nine, you can get your Great Dive Podcast Sings the Christmas Carol C D shipped to you. Three installments of nine ninety nine <laughs> or a one time payment of nineteen ninety nine. Is this like the uh, the old record club, the RCA yeah. Columbia Record Clubs? <laughs> but listen, I have an article to kick off Cave Month that this is a doozy written by the, the man himself. The legend. The legend himself, Sheck Exley. This was from 1990, Brando, published in Underwater Speleology, the NSS CDS magazine. So this is from the 1900s. Is it really relevant in the, in the 2020s? <laughs> Shockingly enough. True. This really sets the pace for so much stuff. And in a time when the recreational community was, was really at the height of making scuba class easier and easier and making the better diver more and more reliant on technology, you had somebody like Sheck coming in and completely revisiting the notion of accident analysis and really diving into the fact that accidents occur and how are we going to learn to make divers better and safer and prevent injuries and prevent fatalities by actually bringing the accident out into the open. And I think this is going to be a great way to kick off this year's Cave Diving Month. And I I think it's going to roll right back in and around to what we keep talking about of the changes in how people learn scuba diving. And I think bring back a little bit of 
the the reality that even if you just want to go to 60 feet down in the Caribbean and look at some fishies on a trip once a year, you're still dealing with a potentially dangerous sport. And if you start your education with, with that in mind, it's only going to make you a better and more prepared diver, regardless of the type of diving you want to do. Oh, I'd agree. I mean, at the base of what you just said is just respect for the activity you're engaging in, knowing there are consequences to, to taking it nonchalantly and, you know, fuck around and find out kind of thing. Yeah, right. And when we start your training that has a consistent path that'll take you all the way in to cave diving in the future without having to completely change all your equipment, completely change all your thinking, throw away the old gas planning that probably didn't even exist and and, and completely relearn a new way of gas planning to completely throw away how you plan a dive to have to start all over again. If we can instead have a clear, consistent path all along the way, when you do continue to grow as a diver, you're only going to be better prepared. Everything you talked about right there is basically approaching it from a a logical, reasonable viewpoint, as opposed to all this bullshit about what works for you and don't stand on the shoulders of giants. You just learn to do something. <laughs> Welcome to my class. How do I do this? What do I do? How do I wear my equipment? However you want. What works for you works. Well, why the fuck am I paying you for this class? Show me what works. <laughs> who's, who's doing what and how did we arrive at, at what you're telling me to do? This is the notion of what I was saying the other day that scuba started – Right in the late 40s, got going in the the 50s. Education soon began, you know, years after that. Formal type education. Yeah, yeah. formal education. Eventually, we realized this could be a business. And then at the same time, though, right, you had groups of people that were getting their hands on this gear, using it in a completely different way in a different environment. So a completely different type of education had to be built. And for the longest time, for decades, for half a century, everybody tried to ignore that this other group of people were using this gear in a different way. And we just looked at them as the the redheaded stepchild that we never wanted to fully embrace and fully admit to. Well, and, but now here we are in night, you know, from going from the 1950s all the way to 2022. And I think the, the community overall is realizing, well, a lot of what these guys had to do that the open water, you can just pop to the surface whenever you want, drop your weights and say, ah, and go community is realizing well it actually makes sense in our environment too is realizing we need to rewrite the book what you're pointing at right there is the industry trying to tell actual divers you know trying to shame them just like they did with the nitrox shit every time somebody was doing something that may affect their their income uh they would try to ridicule it because you know, the cave divers were coming out doing dives way beyond the recreational level, right? Obviously, it's not recreational. It is recreational in the sense like you're not doing it as a job, but it's not recreational in the sense of the recreational scuba agencies training the way they train open water divers. It's not open water diving. So 
the procedures, everything they developed was much more um, intense and comprehensive. So they looked at the way people have accidents underwater and, and had to develop new procedures versus the wham, bam, thank you, ma'am model that was really being pushed into the industry to get to where we're at right now. I mean, we're getting a little better. I do agree there's been changes in positive, uh, efficient way to train people, right, if I can put it that way. Yeah. But it's still nowhere near where it probably should be. There's still a big influence of money over quality. Right, versus what we're going to look at a lot with what Sheck is telling us here in this article. You know, when when you're hundreds of feet inside of a cave entrance and something goes wrong, you, you don't have the luxury of dropping your weights and saying, ah, and going to the surface, right? So you had to develop a smarter, more logical way of ensuring that you had an appropriate amount of gas to get you home. And particularly in the caves. So starting in the 1960s, when when the, the cave diving really started to grow, and then into the 70s, the issue that was really being I should say the the issue that was at the forefront was these fatalities that were occurring in the caves that the recreational community was looking at saying cave diving is bad, cave diving is dangerous, cave diving kills people. But what Sheck is coming to take over the the education of here is that it's the principles from recreational open water that people are coming in thinking I'm going to go to overhead swim into this cave and none of those principles are working anymore and that's where the, they started to say whoa 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 we're having accidents you can't just do this and then what i what i think now in 2023 is when we look at a lot of these accidents we go there's no reason why this cannot be scaled all the way back to scuba stands for self-contained underwater breathing apparatus and this is how you dive which is going to allow it to be able to be used anywhere you want to go, not just in this one little weird little area. And, I mean, looking at it, part of it is really, you know, exclusive to cave diving. But overall, the approach to uh, how they arrived at the rules for cave diving could be, yes, it's scalable to open water. and It would benefit the open water community to adopt something similar, sure. And what we're going to see here is where a lot of those original rules of cave diving developed, we can uh, start to apply that to open water, and they work there as well, versus just your open water thinking is not going to work in an overhead setting. And in uh, 1979, Sheck actually published the, the first you know, real Bible of cave diving, uh, basic cave diving, a blueprint for survival, and uh, really started to look at these accident reports. And this here, this article uh, from 1990, it's in the Underwater Speleology Magazine, volume 17, number four, is an article titled Accident Analysis Revisited. And he starts off by saying that whether we dive mostly to accomplish some task or simply for pure pleasure, we should never forget that the most important factor in planning and implementing a cave dive is survival. It is, of course, impossible to plan and execute a dive with 100% safety. Just as you cannot guarantee your survival 
for the next five minutes while you read this boring article in your easy chair or listen to James and Brando babble and rant <laughs> on about the diving industry. True. He's, I mean, this has to be like, I don't know what, it has to be put into the heads of people calling for more laws and more rules. It's, it, there's there's no guarantee you're going to even walk out your door of your house in the morning. Right, and, and I understand you don't want to scare everybody that is interested in trying to go on a scuba dive and and see something, you know, for, you know, between, you know, margarita, you know, visits on their cruise. <laughs> I, I Okay, I get it. But at the same time, let's have a real discussion with people that want to go scuba diving that it's just as dangerous as getting on the boat that you just got onto, right? It's just as dangerous as walking out of your, your front door. There's no guarantee, no matter what computer you buy, of 100% safety. Not as dangerous as the drive to the dive site. So statistically, but that doesn't mean you want to ignore ways to keep the dive safe. Correct. And Sheck says, nevertheless, it is always wise to attempt to minimize the risk. If diving more safely is simply a matter of working a little harder or buying another item of equipment, finding a better partner, or simply waiting to dive another day because one isn't feeling one's best, why not do it? After all, what is life worth? And this paper cannot answer that last question, but it may highlight some hazards of cave diving that deserve consideration in a dive plan. And I would go so far as to say, in every dive plan, because this was written, you know, in 1990. This is this is still a point of, you know, where where cave diving is still the enemy of the overall scuba industry. It was just ramping up. The hatred was just ramping up. I think this is what the crazy guys did down in Florida. Right. This is when that animosity was conceived, really, <laughs> you know, so because they knew it was getting popular, it started booming then. And on top of that, they started to really have a point in what they were doing, right? And why they were doing things differently. And at a time where they were, you know, they, they weren't using the, the, the most state of the art, high tech equipment. And if anything, they were, you know, like a biker gang taking a Harley Davidson and just cutting it down to a chopper. You know, they, yeah. they, they were stripping down the, the gear that was available in the industry. They were welding things new in garages, right? They were cutting up, cutting up with scissors and duct taping back together, you know, equipment to go and dive. So Sheck takes us on an early history of accident analysis. And he says, the first scuba rigs came to this country from France in 1949. And it wasn't until 1951, however, that an unnamed NSS diver made the first U.S. scuba cave dive in Jug Hole, Florida, according to the Florida speleologist back in 1958. He says this was probably because those first aqualungs went to California where there are very few underwater caves. And I think that's a really interesting historical perspective of how the industry grew, because it did really grow in Southern California, based around that L.A. County 
spear fishermen diving in uh, Southern California as kind of the, the hub of scuba. I still think it's an interesting perspective of it grew from Southern California out of that first sporting goods shop to start carrying it and selling it and then spread from the country there. So Florida didn't get their hands on it right until a couple of years later. And then those guys who were already, you know, swimming in the the springs and snorkeling a little bit in the springs and, you know, seeing those holes and just wondering where they go now get their hands on it and start going. But the book by this time had already been written. Right. So they were, they were applying what was in the open water stuff learned in California and, and elsewhere to caves. But that had exactly. to be the starting point, didn't it? That had it, to be the starting point. Right. And, and Sheck says little attention was paid to the special hazards of cave diving in the 1950s. There were very few divers entering the springs and sinks of Florida, and most of their dives would have been classified as cavern dives under today's standards, where an emergency ascent can be made directly to the surface without a significant horizontal egress. The longest penetration during this period was probably slightly more than 500 feet, he says, made at Wakulla Springs by Wally Jenkins and Gary Salzman in the latter half of the decade. He says this distance was originally reported to be 1,100 feet, but shown to be much shorter by the modern surveying methods employed during the Wakulla project of 1987. Typical, uh, typical men's measuring things. We were a million, <laughs> we went a million feet back. It's 12 inches. <laughs> because there were few cave dives made, there were very few accidents. The first American cave diving fatality didn't occur until 1955 at Radium Springs, Georgia. Now, he says John Harper, NSS number 8352, is the man who led us from the caverns and into the caves. John's teams were the first to dive consistently beyond the daylight zone of underwater caves, making the world's first 1,000-foot penetration and 2,000-foot traverse at Hornsby Springs, Florida in 1962. I love uh, reading these old, well, I love reading the history of cave diving. One big reason I love reading it is because you hear all these names and you can correlate them with the dives you've done and uh, all of the different places in the caves that are named after these people. Right. Isn't that pretty cool? I think it's cool anyway. I want a place named after. What do I got to do to get a place named after me? I hopefully uh, it's not dying. It. I don't. Wanna... If, if you died in a spot, <laughs> uh, everybody will know. remember you there. <laughs> I think uh, most of us who are you know really passionate about scuba diving really would like a place named after them, especially cave divers. I want to. I want you know this is Brando's Ledge or this is Brando Tunnel. You don't want it to be to the no go Brando hole. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I don't want that. I was I was going to say the other thing is or have a an equipment configuration or method or uh, even a knot named after you for tying your bolt snap on. This is traditionally you would use this knot, but then Brando came along and revolutionized, totally turned around the knot tying world on uh, cave diving and bolt snaps and all that other shit. 
Well, it's amazing how many little tricky little things that, you know, we just use on the regular nowadays. Right. Or you can go to a like a, a dive shop, even like a simple basic recreational dive shop, and buy a, a spool that already comes with a weird tricky little Jasper loop or wooden right. knot or, or right. like all these like weird little things that were so obscure that have now just become standard on on products and they're not even named anymore yeah exactly well people will lose the history and and you know what they say you know if you lose your history you're gonna bad things will happen you're bound to repeat it is what they say and that's why great dive podcast is here people to to bring you the history that you were never told in your scuba class whoa sounds like a conspiracy theory show (laughs) the history you never knew because they withheld it by the end of the decade, the 60s, John and his partners had explored over 90% of the underwater cave passage in the United States that was known at the time. And encouraged by John's example, the permanent lines he left behind and the arrival of the first crude submersible pressure gauges, hundreds of other divers started wandering into Florida's better-known caves. And this increase in cave diving activity was not without a price, Sheck tells us. In 1960 alone, there were four cave diving fatalities, doubling the previous totals. The following year, it doubled again with eight new victims. And by the end of the decade, 66 divers had lost their lives in Florida caves. Articles on cave diving safety began showing up in divers' guidebooks. And in 1969, the first cave diving manual. Divers were concerned. This is where we had a, a bit of the separation, right? Which, which now, you know, yeah. the, the industry realizing, you know, how many cave divers there are out, out there now around the world, they're going... Whoa, let's let's bring this, yeah, let's bring this all back together. But here at this time they were they were disassociating, right? And cave diving is where you went to die, right? Push it over there. We're not gonna touch it. We're not gonna do it. We're not gonna promote it. Let's stay away from it. That's what the crazies do. I think that it attracts an, a certain type of person. That, you know, these people are like, oh, you don't want me to do that? Why? Let me go take a look. And then well, you fall course, in love with it. Well, of course, that's exactly what's happening, who it's attracting, right? And even still today, still today you get people that get certified in Southern California or they get certified in the Cayman Islands or they get certified in Bali and then they, they come back home or they go to somewhere where, where a cave is and they, they still to this day think, I'm just going to go take a peek. And they try to take open water recreational basic you should be in 30 feet of clear open water reef education and they try to take it into a cave and they die well you know the signs were supposed to take care of that when they started putting up the signs but there's another topic we could talk about really the lack of effectiveness of the signs it's almost like it said it did the opposite almost. <laughs> right. But yeah, exactly. And I agree with you. Like, uh-huh. let, let's let's make it more difficult to get into the cave, not something to, to go take a quick peek right on the edge. So, Brando, we had one group of people out there that were saying, 
cave diving's bad, cave diving's dangerous, cave divers die. And then you had the actual cave divers that wanted to look at this from a different angle right? and not just say don't do it because this is what this was their passion. This is what they loved, the, 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 the real sense of exploration and getting out and doing something. And they started to look at these fatalities and tried to come up with some sort of association that explained why these people would perish doing something that they love doing well <laughs> the um if we as a species stopped doing anything dangerous where do you think we'd be right now where do you think we'd be in our evolution we'd all be in our happy utopian suburban homes we'd be nowhere we'd still be stuck in the stone age if we survived at all so you have to have the spirit of Yes, it's dangerous. I go there and I explore because we must. It's in our nature. And we'll find ways to mitigate the risk or we'll use our fucking brains and figure a way to do it, obviously, with less risk or, in other words, more safely. Right. I mean, there was a time when people would look at anybody who wanted to <laughs> jump off of a cliff uh -huh. and, and they would go, are you crazy? You will die. Like, that's, that's a sure way to die. It's a sure way to live, too, though. Whoa, profound. And now today, with, with, with the, uh, the science and the education, you know, now uh, man has designed these squirrel-jumping suits, and people are literally going to cliffs on a regular basis, running and jumping off and flying off of that cliff and living. And not just, you know, literally living. I mean, the big passionate philosophical living yeah really experiencing something that will help us grow as a species that's how we evolve we don't evolve by sitting in our corner going i don't want to be hurt and i can't die i don't want to die you're gonna die you're going to die guaranteed and you're gonna die a miserable horrible life if you if you die sitting there safe on your couch right you have not lived at all so so Sheck brings us to this next topic called the associative approach. And he tells us that no one was more concerned than Dave DeSotos. While most recoveries were made by divers on the scene at the time of the accident, occasionally law enforcement officials had to call in outside help. And by the late 1960s, David organized a team of volunteer divers to do this tough and thankless task. He also began a study of the accidents for the Florida Bureau of Vital Statistics. Dave's study can be defined as an associative approach where one looks for something else that happened at the same time, just before it, or in some way associated with the event in question. The strength of this sort of approach is that there's little chance that a key factor will be missed. For example, his 1973 study included at least 24 significant factors. Unfortunately, the associative approach also has the weakness of making it easy to confuse association with causality. Right, right. just because it's there doesn't mean it caused it, but it could have an influence on it to a certain degree. And, and mind you, this was before the days 
you know, this is when statistics, they, they actually took them and analyzed them without the intent to mislead the public. This was before the, the book How to Lie with Statistics was, was written, <laughs> which it seems to be the textbook of our politicians. <laughs> right, but he's, at this point, they're at least taking information, mm-hmm. going, going back and trying to look for a chain of events of, because up to here it was, well, yeah, he died, he was cave diving. Right, so all cave divers will die. Because Correct. that's one thing they had in common. But, and they died in a cave. So, yes, that, there's the cause and effect. You, you cave dive, you die. But what about all those that live? <laughs> so Exactly. So when they start taking all this information of the gear that they were wearing, mm-hmm. what they had, how much gas they had, who they were with, the Zodiac amount of experience sign. they had, their Zodiac Well, exactly. And, how much and hair. That's what Sheck, and Zach, that's what Sheck tells us here. He says... You know, unfortunately, with all these statistics, you know, Dave once, you know, cautioned that even with his own statistics showed that one wouldn't drown if they only went diving on Tuesdays because <laughs> exactly. none of the accidents through the end of 1972 had occurred on a Tuesday yet. Right. Well, and, and there you go. But this is a starting point. I mean, you can criticize associative this associative rule because it doesn't necessarily mean causality on the, by the same token, it doesn't necessarily mean it's not caused by those associations. You have to have a starting point, And this was a great starting point. This is, this is like the logical, very logical and gather all the data data. And now we start to break it down. Absolutely. This is where it all begins. And today in 2023, we're starting to see finally, you're starting to see, you know, stuff out there in in our diving community of taking a look and stepping back at all of this little stuff that leads up to accidents and injuries and fatalities more so than we'll just don't do that type of diving. Right. Right, that's the it's the easy way. Now Sheck says that Dave quit diving about this time and I inherited the task of organizing cave recoveries in Florida. Unfortunately, this was during what Skin Diver magazine called the Great Cave Rush of the 70s. And suddenly the popularity of the sport exploded with more than 156,000 divers entering at least one underwater cave in Florida each year. According to good old Paul Zamoulis uh, writing in Skin Diver in 1973. Now, with that influx, Brando, of hundreds of thousands of divers the number of victims is also going to increase and yeah and in 1974 there was an all-time high of 26 fatalities alone and sheck says that i personally brought out 36 bodies and helped recover many more and like dave before me i became obsessed with finding some way to stop the drownings and as most cave divers today know, and probably most active cave divers today probably have in their library, is that little blue paperback stapled yeah. together basic cave diving, a blueprint for survival by Sheck Exley. And I would recommend, you know, all divers to it's... jump on 
Amazon or wherever you got to go. Uh, walk in. I mean, you can readily buy this at almost any dive shop, you know, cave diving dive shop in northern Florida. But, I mean, you can get your hands on it. E- even still today, it's full of of great stuff talking about, you know, the importance of having a guideline and planning your air supply and, and what happens and why we don't dive too deep on air and the, the problems associated with narcosis and panic and making sure you have appropriate lighting and why you have lighting more than just to do a night dive to see colors, right? There's, there's, there's a logical reason for, for using dive lights. Now, Sheck says, the first thing I did with the data that I had added to Dave's was to apply the principle of parsimony. He says, also known, also known, Sheck says, as Occam's razor. The simplest explanation for an event is the best explanation. You know, Occam's razor is Harry's cousin. Great, 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 great. Harry's razors. It's a joke, man. <laughs> Gillette's step cousin. <laughs> now, Occam's razor. Do you, so do you know anything about Occam? Do you know where Occam's razor came from? Did you know Occam's razor is not named after? Well, did you know that Occam did not make up Occam's razor? Do tell. I'm William sure of people, Occam, 1600s. People are on the edge of their seats right now. Well, I mean, people, people throw, the, throw the term around. People are, great time podcast <laughs> listeners around the world are pulling their vehicles over on the side of the expressway right now. Tell them. I, I mean, people throw it around, but they have no idea where it came from or what, which is worrisome because we use a lot of shit and nobody knows really what it means or where it came from. But yeah, Occam's Razor, William of Occam, 1600s. But they named it after him because he wielded that philosophy very well in his undertakings. But Really, you've got it being used by uh, Aristotle, Ptolemy, back in, like, what is this, like, first century A.D. A razor-sharp edge of cutting through... Bullshit. Bullshit. There you go. Okay, we've got all these possible reasons. And you can get crazy with your reasons. Like, he woke up and had two fried eggs for breakfast and sausage, and that increased his cholesterol level, and... Decreased his banking and his blood supply to his heart. You could go crazy, but that's not a very likely way that happened. Usually, the simplest explanation is the most accurate. And that is the point of what Sheck is bringing to this data that Dave had collected. Sheck says one of two rules or violations, often both, were found to be present in nearly all the accidents for which we had data. These were not using a guideline from the entrance and not reserving a third of the starting air supply for emergencies. So those were like the first two biggies that came about from Sheck's accident analysis, his undertaking. And what we know is there are two topics that are completely ignored in open water scuba education. Bia, when, uh, when you... Walk through the woods to a hole in the ground that gets blacker and blacker and blacker. The notion of be back on the boat with 500 PSI. (laughs) (laughs) It's a little short. there's, There's no concept to associate that whatsoever. When you can just pop to the surface anywhere, it doesn't matter. 
it'd be nice to get back to the boat so you don't have to do the swim of shame, right? But if you can just pop up and, and dump your weights if you need to, now again, like when you go back in where there's only one way out, despite there being possible different different ways to go in, that you have to find that way out, it doesn't relate to open water education. We have the, I can always throw my weights off and blow and go in the back of your mind. That's your little pacifier keeping you from panic. Like, I don't have to solve my problem down here. I can just blow to the surface. And that can't be applied to cave diving. You know, we never go into an open water dive even with the idea, oh, if it all goes to shit, I'm just going to blow to the surface. We would never, ever approach a dive like that. Exactly. So we're starting to see here that if we go the other way, we can apply these concepts to open water diving. But you can't apply open water concepts to overhead diving. Well, open water concepts are more of a lack of concepts. Right, exactly. So you and I look at it like, no, you can never just give up and say, I don't want to play anymore and shoot to the surface no matter what. Hit the elevator button. Right, You have to know what way to go home, and you have to have the appropriate amount of gas to get everybody back. Right. Now, Sheck says, the few accidents where we did not have data suggesting that either or both of these rules had been violated all occurred at depths of 155 feet or deeper. And this is considerably deeper than the recommended depth for scuba diving on air. No other three factors covered all the accidents. Because their statistical significance, these three factors became known as the cardinal safety procedures for cave diving and appeared in bold print in the first NSS CDS safety brochures in uh, 1978. So in a time where the growing battle for the number one scuba agency was telling divers just never dive alone don't dive too deep don't run out of air right i mean the really the 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 leading cave diving manual was coming out with here's a story of somebody who died because they didn't have a continuous guideline home they, they didn't, they got lost. They didn't know the way home every single time. Chapter one, this is why we, you know, have a guideline. Chapter two, this is somebody who died, a, a very common story of somebody dying because they didn't reserve enough gas to make sure that they got home. This is, this is why we plan gas the way we plan gas, right? Uh, right. This is somebody who got too narked out, couldn't think, made a really stupid decision for breathing air deeper than you should breathe air. This is why we don't breathe air too deep. And oxygen gets toxic. Uh, yeah, right, right. So completely a different way of thinking how to approach educating the diver. Decades ago. Right. But it's so apparently logical in its methodology and in its development. Why wasn't this approach adapted to open water dive Because training? they always pushed it aside as the let's not ever, let's not even admit right. that they are even, let, can we call them, do they have to be called cave divers? Can't we call them something different than divers? Just completely keep it over there. But now in, in the last, you know, five, 10 years, you're starting to see little bits of this 
start to creep in, particularly with stuff like gas planning. It's, you know, the, the, the dive books are now starting to bring a little bit more of this in, but they're not, I don't know why, but they still haven't fully adopted what it really is. Well, I know why. What do you mean you don't know why? Come on, man. The floor, the floor is yours. Let me adjust this. Let me adjust this microphone no, for you a little no, bit. I'm not going to go a, there. Here's a glass of water for you. Uh, take a and uh, all right, go, go, Brando. The people want to hear it. Uh, no, no, really, you don't know why. You don't know why. What is the basic motivator for most lackings in in direction? If it's more work... Well, I guess I didn't want to admit it. Right, exactly. You don't want to admit that accidents can happen and your particular method of training doesn't even address the reasons accidents are happening. Make it easy, make it easy, make it easy. Don't say the D word because it scares people off. Make them believe there's little to no risk. Right. At the end of the day, they know that if... We have to go through all this scary talk, and the people need to be a lot better prepared. They know at the end of the day, those numbers of new divers is going to fall. Right. Actually, it kind of works to keep people safe. You know, they're getting kind of crappy training. So they go out, they're already nervous going in the water because nobody feels comfortable because they've been diving and they don't feel comfortable because they're not competent at it and they know it. So they give it up. So another number goes out, they got certified, but they don't dive anymore. It makes the statistics like, oh, they lived, they're alive, so diving is safe. Well, they, they lived in spite of your policies, and they're not diving anymore. We can't really call them divers, but you're including those numbers in the stats. Again, I go back to the book, How to Lie with Statistics. There's one method right there. We're including all these people that don't even dive anymore under certified divers compared to the number of incidents and accidents. And then, of course, it's a huge number of potential divers, certified divers, and a very small number of incidents. But if you take it and look at the active divers and the number of incidents, it's a completely different number, and it doesn't look good. And there you go. And what Sheck's writing here and what, what he was putting together with these new rules and this new thinking and this concept of accident analysis was really like write us a slap in the face to the thinking of let's get the whole entire world certified to dive, right? Because he's saying we need way more time in the water. We need way more thinking in the water. And yes, you're going to have a lot less people getting certified. But those people, like what you're saying right now, are going to stick with it. They're going to stick with it. They're going to spend money, and they'll attract more divers. Eventually, you know, you get to where we are right now with this watering down of everything, and everybody can do it. It's just, A, it's just not true, and, and B, you drive people out of the community because people are attracted to doing things that are a little more difficult, require a little more effort. That's why you, a lot of people get into things. If you want to do easy shit, go scrapbooking or something. I don't know. To me, it seems a lot much easier. I know the scrapbookists are going to come out, call me a scrapbookist because I'm, I'm discriminating against scrapbookists. The long story short is put the work in. It becomes something of value to people. When, it, when there's more that needs to be put into it, it becomes more valuable, and you'll keep the people in it, and they get more joy and reward from it, and they're more comfortable, and ultimately the biggest benefit is people live. You're not losing loved 
family members or friends because they got a cheapo $99 Groupon special. Right. It's a matter of, you know, the the industry seems to be so addicted to the quick dollar that they completely ignore the the long big dollar. Right. Missing the forest through the trees, you know, or you're you're looking at the pennies as the dollars are flowing out the window, you dumbasses. (laughs) (laughs) Right, because every cave diver, you know, out there knows uh, you, you can see them, you know, roll up to the dive site with fifty thousand dollars worth of, <laughs> of equipment, gear, yes. right? And they're they're living in a tent at the state park, you know, because uh, they they can't afford anything else. But God damn it, they will spend money. They'll take out second mortgages. It's insane. So, like the yeah, exactly the the concept of that they're not spending money. Is a ridiculous. It one. is. It is. It's exponentially more than the the sport diver who's going to the Cayman Islands once every two years, right? Buying a fifteen hundred dollar package of gear. I'm just surprised no one earlier had the longer vision. I, I find it hard to believe. I believe they did have the longer vision, and they were shut down by the loudmouths. Because I mean, we are where we are, and I would say directly because of this approach of quicker, faster let's grab the money and run kind of approach. And now we're losing numbers like crazy. And don't take my word for it. I mean, we just had Darcy's website, the Scubanomics. Go look at the surveys. Go look at the numbers. It'll show you we are losing divers. We are losing business. Darcy's stuff shows it fantastically. If you go over to that Scubanomics Medium page, he's got tons of articles about it. And that's just for the last couple of years. You and I both know that for decades we've been listening to the, the big heads of the big agencies telling us that there's a huge dropout. And the answer's always been you got to push Con Ed, you got to push Con Ed. You know, the people get certified, they don't, they don't take Con Ed. But I, I think what we're coming with right now is that's not the answer. The con ed they're offering is kind of a joke as well to a certain degree. And and I know I'm one-sided and I wouldn't be a good person to be like in charge of this because I'm very much on the – I would err to the side of overtraining. And um, I don't know if that's the correct answer either. You need You need a middle ground. My whole point of my rants is we are so far off on the let's make the quick buck that we have killed the industry and the industry's on the decline. Well, when you can take a litany of education – and have a whole big collection of certification cards in your logbook, but you still get to a point, if you wanted to come to this training, that you have to start all over again mm-hmm. because you're unprepared. Right. That should tell you that that is not a, a growth model line of an educational model. So, so getting the continuing education is not the answer there because you're still missing the core critical first day of training lesson that's going to come with what Sheck ended up thinking through and bringing us this analysis approach. Exactly. You know, look at your scuba education as a pyramid and that base, you have to have the solid base. If the base you got in open water 101 is made of freaking paper mache, uh, the stuff you're piling on top of it is going to all come tumbling down. <laughs> okay. That's, I think that's enough of our rants and which is mostly me. I, I I'll take the credit, but Okay, all right, Brando. That's uh, I'm sweating. Happy place. I'm I'm, I I, I ripped my shirt off. (laughs) It's that passion you have. That I mean, it's a double-edged sword. It's 
it's great for teaching and it, and it's contagious to, to new people and other divers. But the other side of it is the pissed offness, the anger. Yes, it's demeaning at times. Right. I hear you. I know what you mean. Like uh, when you know what you've put into it over these decades to tell somebody in 99, you know, for 99 bucks in one weekend, you can do the yeah. same thing. It's <laughs> goddamn right. It's demeaning. Well, when you go, to, you know, you go to any family function or anything where friends are and the, and the word is like, oh, he's a diver. And then somebody will come up. I'm a diver, too. And you start talking. You're like, well, are you, though? <laughs> <laughs> No, I get it. I mean, uh, again, I mean, a, a guy that's been, you know, mm-hmm. living, breathing, working in and, and making the, the dive industry his life, his whole life. Um, I mean, I, I do want to share it with everybody. I would love to share it with the world, but I want to come at it with a reality of if you think it's just, you know, something that you can fiddle fuck around with and not pay attention to it because it's so easy and everybody can do it. Right. Dude, go take your class somewhere else. Like, I don't, I don't want to teach you. Like, I, like I expect you to come in with some seriousness and the idea that I'm going to work. I'm going to put some work, and I'm going to work gonna at it. Make right. this valuable to me. I'm going to put value. Thank you. Yeah, I think that's a perfect place to stop this episode because I know we've got to continue this article and and all of Cave Diving Month, but definitely this article because it's uh, of course by Sheck, and it's I think our our divers need to know it. I think it's a it's a big one. And then it's an important one. And we're going to get into some juicy stuff here coming up uh, next episode. Totally. So this is a cliffhanger, people. That's right. No logbooks today. Uh, but I am going to have me another cup of uh, this Abyss coffee that I'm drinking, Brendo. Ooh, you know, I got some of the Davy Jones locker. You know, I'm not usually a flavored coffee guy. Every now and again, I, I don't mind a little little flavored coffee. This is the Davy Jones locker, a little coconut Jamaican rum kind of feel. You know, I'm uh, I'm dig I'm digging it. Yeah, man, I like me the Davy Jones man with the, <laughs> with the ganja man. No. <laughs> Davy Jones. Every time you say Davy Jones, I think of Davy Bones. Our friends at Davy Bones, which is again one of the best names for a scuba shop. There you go. And get over to the Abyss Coffee Co. dot com and. Grab one of your uh, favorite coffees, like the Kraken or the Siren or the Hydra or the Medusa or the new uh, Mermaid Molly caramel flavored coffee, and some of those, some of those uh, new teas that uh, that Angie's got over there. So abyscoffeeco.com. Don't forget to use the code uh, TGDP10 for a little discount and to let her know that you heard about her wonderful coffee company via the Great Dive Podcast. All right, Brando, let's uh, let's wrap this one up. We will get back to Sheck Exley's accident analysis revisited next week. So we'll catch you on the flip side. 